we're looking and we're picking up tonight in Mark 12 and verse 35. And I will read the passage through to the end of the chapter. Uh, we've, we've actually taken our time in the last few weeks and just done a few verses at a time, a, a short section at a time. And, and now we're going to do three short sections all in one, just to wrap the chapter up. But they're all pretty brief, and I think I'd rather keep the flow of them together than separate them out. So we'll, we'll, we'll whiz through them, as it were. Uh, but let me read through, then we'll pray, and then we'll study together. So, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David called himself Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at, at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these passages and we pray that we would understand them, that your spirit would speak, that you would be merciful to us tonight and that you will be glorified through the teaching of your word this evening. Amen. Okay. Well, it's our final week in Mark 12. We're going to come to chapter 13 and it's a kind of similar kind of stuff, but it's a new section as well. Um, but it's good to wrap this up as we come to Christmas. Um, and then we'll kick off again in, the, in about three weeks' time in the new year. If you recall, uh, Jesus, let's just overview of the whole gospel. We'll, we'll do this again in more detail when we come back in three weeks when we start the new chapter. But Jesus came and he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching good news. He's preaching the kingdom of God to the people. And, and, and within the first few chapters of Mark's gospel, there has been a rejection of Jesus. And how do you reject Jesus? Well, he's come and he's specifically shown himself to be the mighty one. John said, hey, look, there's John the Baptist, this is. There's one who's mightier than I who's coming. I'm not fit to tie over his shoelaces. And, and the mighty one is Jesus. And he shows his might because there's someone who's controlled, who's possessed by a demon. And Jesus just cast the demon out. He has someone possessed by you know, a thousand demons and he casts them all out and throws them into a herd of pigs. And He's got complete control. He's the mighty one. So if he's the one who's mighty, how on earth do you, do you explain him not being who he claims to be, him not having authority? And the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they explained it away by saying that he was possessed by a demon himself. Now, Jesus showed the futility of their argument, but the, the leadership had rejected him. And so Jesus' entire ministry changes. And he's trained up his disciples and those who believe in him while no longer offering the kingdom to Israel as a whole. And that's really going on from chapter 4 right the way through. 
When we came to chapter 11, we saw something very dramatic. It took us a long time to get from chapter 4 to chapter 11. So we had a lot and lot of weeks, just every week, reminding you, Jesus isn't teaching the public, he's preaching to his disciples. Look, Jesus isn't saying this in public, he's saying it to his disciples. And the only thing he says in public, he says in parables. He says, so the truth is hidden. And we come from this kind of background, many of us in churches, where parables are nice stories to help you remember something. But that's only half the story, and it's really the lesser half of the story. Mark specifically told us that the main point of parables is not so that you and I can remember them better, but it's to hide the truth from those who are not welcome to have it, because they're under judgment. And so we've had this huge section, the bulk of our time in Mark, where the truth has been hidden from the masses. And then in chapter 11, Jesus is suddenly teaching in the temple again. Why is he teaching? Is he offering them the kingdom again? No, he's doing the opposite. They've been kept silent. The, the, the truth has been hidden from them because they're under judgment. And now Jesus breaks his silence, not to offer them a way out, but to preach judgment to them. And he preaches judgment against the sacrificial system, against the temple system, against the abuses of the temple system. And as Jesus has come to the temple, he's come, as you recall, in chapter um, in chapter nine, he, he, uh, sorry, chapter 11, he came into the temple. I'm getting my Mark chapters and Zechariah chapters. In Mark 11, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, he comes to the temple on the donkey, fulfills the prophecy, and in doing so, he presents himself in the temple on the same day that the Passover lamb was presented in the temple to make sure it was sufficient. It was without blemish. It was an acceptable sacrifice. And so Jesus, over the same period of days where the lamb was tested, Jesus has been tested. And we've been through all these passages. He's been tested by the Pharisees and the Herodians. He's been tested by the, the Sadducees. And he's been tested by the scribes. And finally, with the scribes, we see a guy who is very, very close to believing for himself and accepting the kingdom. But the point of those tests were that Jesus was tested and he has passed the test. He's proven himself to be worthy, to have authority, to be who he claims to be. And when we now come to verse 35, the whole thing shifts. They've been saying, what do you say about this? What's your understanding of the law? Are you who you say you are? What's all of this? And now Jesus throws the test and the challenge back to them. Now this comes immediately uh, after Jesus has said to a guy, look, you're close to the kingdom. And immediately afterwards, he now says... How do the scribes, remember the guy who was close was a scribe, how can the scribes say this? And in saying this, he's doing several things here at once. He is now turning the challenge and the test back to them. But at the same time, he's doing it on the basis of the scribes when one scribe is really, really, really close and he's helping him take that final step which is where I left us last time, as I recall. And so what he's saying is this. Here's the question to them. So Jesus is teaching in the temple. Remember the teaching here is teaching of judgment. He's condemning the leaders. He's not offering them a way out. But in doing this, he's, he's hinting for those who are close, perhaps the way for them to go. 
He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ, so that means Messiah, the, the prophesied Messiah, is the son of David? So, first of all, this is, the fact that the Messiah is the son of David is not disputed. We've already referenced in recent weeks, First Chronicles and the passage where the Messiah is going to come from the family of David. The Messiah, Genesis, was going to be the son of the seed of the woman, going to descend from, from a woman. It's going to be a human birth. It's going to come through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob, so he's going to be a Jew. He's going to come through the tribe of Judah and he's going to come through the family of David. So we know that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. So the, the issue that the Messiah is going to be son of David, the descendant of David, is not a question. The scribes teach that, the scriptures teach it, they understood that. Jesus' question then is, if he is David's son, a descendant of David, how come David calls him Lord? And he quotes to him, he quotes to them rather, Psalm 110. Let's just turn to Psalm 110 and read it there. I think that's always the best way to do it. Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, the first thing we have to note here is this, okay? In English, we've got the same word twice, Lord. In Hebrew, we don't. The first time the Lord is mentioned in most Bibles, it will have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you notice that in your Bibles? Yeah? Okay? Whenever you see that, you know that the Hebrew word is Yahweh. It doesn't mean Lord, it is literally the name of God. My name's Anthony. God's name is Yahweh. I am that I am. That's who he declares himself to be. So, so this is the name of God. So Yahweh says to my Lord. So Yahweh is speaking to someone that David refers to as his Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your, foot, your enemies your footstool. So the, the Yahweh is saying to David's Lord, this character that's the Lord of David, you sit at my right hand, as a position of authority, until I make your enemies your footstool. So you're going to permanently be in a place of authority until all is conquered. And you can rest. And it's clear from the rest of that psalm, which of course is being referred to, he's looking at the whole psalm here, that this is the one who is the mighty Messiah. The Lord, capitals again, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That's the mighty scepter belonging to David's Lord. So the Messiah has a scepter. And it, again, it's, it's a picture of, of ruling and authority and power. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the Messiah has power and rule over his enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. Here's a key verse. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we have this Lord, the Messiah, who is going to have his enemies conquered by God. He's going to rule over them with might. And he's also, as well as the ruler, going to be a priest. Now remember the role of a priest. A priest 
is the intermediary between God and man. So in the Old Testament, you'd have the priests that would make the sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. And so a priest is standing in the gap between God and man. Now, most priests under the Old Covenant, well, all the priests under the Old Covenant, came from descendancy of Aaron. They're the Levitical priests, and they had to be of a specific descendancy to qualify to be a priest. But you see, this priest is not an Aaronic priest. He's a priest according to Melchizedek. Now, we'll talk more about Melchizedek when we come to doing Book of Hebrews in the coming year. But this is simply to note that, and isn't this fascinating in the context, Jesus in chapters 11 and 12 is eschewing, he's getting rid of the entire Old Covenant sacrificial system. The Levitical priesthood, the Levitical sacrifices are all being done away with, and yet there's still one who'll be a priest. So they're saying to Jesus, how do you have the authority to do this? Who are, who, who are you that you can come in and, and say to the end of the, the system, the end of sacrifices, to come and turn over the tables of the temple, to, to destroy this sacrificial system, to condemn it? How can you do that? And Jesus is showing them. He's saying, I have the authority to do it because the Messiah is the son of David and yet the Lord of David and he is a priest forever. There will be an intermediary between God and man, but not through the old Levitical sacrificial system. Melchizedek was a character from the Old Testament, and we're not going to have time to spend a lot of time on him today, and I will do him to death when we do Hebrews. We'll go through him in a lot of detail. But I don't want to distract from the point here, which is in the context and the flow of Mark. Mark is showing that there is a way for man and God to connect apart from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus has condemned that system. He said that system's coming to an end. The sacrifices are coming to an end. The temple's coming to an end. He hinted it back in chapter 7 when he said that all meat will be clean. The whole, the restrictions are all going to come to an end. The law's going to come to an end. The temple curtain in a little few chapters time is going to be torn in two. The whole of it is coming to an end. And yet there will still be an intermediary bridging the gap between God and man. And so Jesus is teasing them with this little bit of detail, pointing them to a passage of Scripture that allows for a system that is different to their system. And then he goes on and says, the Lord, notice not Yahweh, the Lord, the, the Messiah, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. Filling, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So the Messiah is going to be at the right hand of Yahweh, and he is going to conquer. He is going to rule and reign, and this is second coming of Christ's prophecies. So they know, going back to Mark 12, they know that this son of David is the Messiah. And yet David himself, in one of his psalms, wrote a song about the Messiah, and he refers to that Messiah as his Lord. Jesus' question is, how is it that David can call him Lord, and yet he's a descendant of David? 
If David comes first, surely David is the Lord of the descendant rather than the other way around. And what it goes to show is simply this, that when the Messiah comes from the line of David, he's greater than David. It's pointing to the fact that David wasn't able to build the temple because of his sin. His son Solomon had to do it. But there's another descendant of David who's going to come and be a priest outside of that entire temple system. That's the Melchizedek reference. And I believe that's one of the key points of why Jesus is quoting here Psalm 110. But most of all, what Jesus is doing is he's answering the question that has been plaguing the last two chapters. Who are you presenting yourself in this temple and turning everything over and predicting its end and saying it's all over? And his answer is parabolic. It's hidden. Hidden in a little parable. It's not clear because he's not going to teach them clearly. But he is hinting. And the answer is, he's the Messiah, and he is the one that's going to replace the temple, and he is the one that's going to bridge the gap between God and man. No longer will there be Passover lambs sacrificed each year. He will be the one sacrifice for all time. Thus, being a priest, an intermediary between God and man. And so, following on from last week and this scribe, the scribe, what did he do? That, what did he say last time? That Jesus said, wow man, you're close. The scribe recognized that the system, the sacrifices, the offerings, wasn't more important than the basic stuff of loving God and loving your neighbor. That the law had all of these little details regarding sacrifices, but the essence of the law, the essence of who God was, was we need to worship God. How do we worship God? Well, we have a sacrificial system. Let's take away that sacrificial system. Have we just got rid of our faith? No, because God is greater than the sacrificial system. The system comes to an end, but God doesn't come to an end. You can get rid of the way in which things are done, and we still have to love God, and we still have to love our neighbor. But it'll have to be done differently. And so Jesus said to him, you're close because you're recognizing that you need to submit to God rather than to the system. You've separated the two. The Pharisees couldn't accept Jesus because they, they, they couldn't separate God from their system of doing, their way of doing things. This man could. And so Jesus is pointing him to the last missing ingredient. You need to recognize who I am. He's not just a teacher. He's the Messiah. And he's the replacement of the system. And he continues to teach. And in his teaching, verse 38, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, again, you must see how this follows. 
He's been tested by Pharisees and Herodians. He's been tested by Sadducees. And the final test was, was, wasn't a, a test to deliberately catch him out like the first two. It was a genuine question from a, a scribe who understood better than his colleagues. And Jesus, in his challenge, has questioned back again and he's pointed to who he was and his authority to replace the system. He's the one who David calls Lord. He's the one who has authority to override the system. He is the one who is a priest according to Melchizedek. He's the one who will bridge the gap. But now he offers not just a challenge to point scribes in the right direction, but he, he issues a warning to get them to turn from the way that they're going. And we're going to see how this links up with what the man said. You remember the scribe said he understood that it was more important. What, how do you sum up the law? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, here's the most important commandment, love God. But he says, here's the second most important, love your neighbor. And we took the time last week and we went through Leviticus 19 and we looked at all the ways in which you love your neighbour. We looked at the reference to widows and, and treating them well and, and, and it was very specific stuff. Now Jesus referenced back to that now when he says, beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. So there they are dressed up all grand in lovely, expensive robes. Here I am, look at me. Aren't I wonderful? Look at my long robe. And as they go in their long robes, they stick out from everybody else. And they go in the marketplace and, oh, scribe, rabbi. And, and they're respected and they love the attention. They love it. And so, when they go to the synagogue, because they have an elevated position, they get the best seats. They're treated better than other people. And when there's a feast, they, respected scribes, get the place of honour. So basically everything up to the end of verse 39 is saying that these people are highly regarded in positions of power, positions of authority, and position of honour, and they love it. Now, that isn't the problem so much per se as what they then do with that, verse 40. They devour widows' houses and, and for a pretense make long prayers. So here you have people in positions of power and authority whose job was to teach people what the law of Moses said, right? That's what the scribes do. They're the experts in the law of Moses. This scribe has come to Jesus and he said, what is the most important commandment? Show me that you understand the law. Show me that you're somebody who upholds the law. Because you've just preached a sermon about the ending of the whole sacrificial system and temple, which is such an important and integral part of the law. And Jesus answers correctly. And so he knows that he understands and respects the law. And what Jesus does now is he shows, and not only is he right, but the scribes generally are wrong. The people who are there to point you to the law, what are the two most, we just established, the two most important things in the law that sum up the law is love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength and love your neighbour. Put somebody else above you. Prioritise the weak, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the disadvantaged. That's the essence of the law. 
Elevate God, elevate your neighbour. What are the scribes doing? They're elevating themselves. Long robes, lovely greetings. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Privileged position, best tickets in the house. And on top of that, they're then using that position to do the exact opposite. Rather than lifting up their neighbour, rather than helping the disadvantaged, they're destroying them. In Exodus, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it real quick. I'm just going to give you an example. In Exodus 22 and verses 22 and, and 23, he says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So no mistreating of widows and orphans. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I'll kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. That's hard, isn't it? You treat widows badly, you're going to end up being a, someone who creates a widow by your death. You end up uh, treating orphans badly, you're going to have orphans. It's a really serious form of judgment. God takes this stuff seriously. And what was happening is the scribes, when they would hear that a widow was in had a problem. There was rabbinical laws regarding their dwelling places. So a widow has a house and her house is in disrepair or collapses and she needs somewhere to live. They're gonna, she's going to get help, right? She's going to get support, right? She's going to have someone help her financially with a place to live, which she desperately needs because the whole essence of the law is loving God, prioritizing him, and that is seen predominantly in the way that they love their people within their community particularly the weak and disadvantaged. So what did the scribes do when there was a widow in need? They prayed. That's what they did. They prayed. They didn't get up off their backside. They didn't do anything to help. They didn't make financial contributions. They didn't do any sacrifice on their part at all. They prayed a long-winded prayer, and everyone said, oh, look at the scribes and their clever prayers. Aren't they so wonderful and holy? And that's what he says. You devour widows' houses, benefit from them, financially benefit from them, often even take from them rather than give to them, and you say prayers to cover it all up. And you say all these long prayers, long-winded prayers, and everyone thinks, wow, how holy you are. And isn't this exactly the attitude we see in so many Christians today. I'm not going to do anything to help you, but I'll pray for you. And then people pray and they make long-winded prayers and they speak in Christianese and everyone thinks, oh, how holy is this person? Look how they pray. You know what? Stop praying, go do something that's a hundred times more holy than praying with big words. That's how it works. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so what Jesus is doing is he's linking the hypocrisy of the scribes with the truth that that one close to salvation scribe recognized, which is that the law is about loving God and loving your neighbor, or loving God through loving your neighbor. 
The missing link was recognising that the reason the sacrificial system could be done away with is because the Messiah was coming and the Messiah would be the new intermediary that's separate from the old sacrificial system. And therefore, in removing that sacrificial system, he wasn't, dis he wasn't um, breaking the law, he was replacing the law. And the scribes who say, well, he couldn't be the Messiah, he's getting rid of a sacrificial system, they didn't even believe in the essence of the law. They didn't want to elevate God, they wanted to elevate themselves. They didn't want to look after widows and orphans, they wanted to make a buck off them and ignore them and not be troubled by them. They weren't people who were upholding the law themselves, which is why Jesus was condemning them, why he was condemning the sacrificial system, and why he had come to replace it. And so, in warning the scribes, in pointing the scribes, first of all, to who he was, he then warns them away from they are, where they are, which in essence was a call to repentance. Stop being hypocrites, stop serving yourself, recognize my authority and turn. And that's as close as you're going to get to repentance in the midst of judgment preaching, which is telling them that they are going to be done for. And I tell you what, those who didn't repent, when the judgment came, they did become, there were lots of widows that were made, and there were lots of orphans that were made just as Exodus had predicted. And so, we have all of that linking together, where Jesus is showing that he is the one who's truly fulfilling the law, even in the act of doing away with it. Jesus didn't come and say, the law has failed, I've got rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law. He kept the law perfectly and then was able to replace it with something better. And the people who were saying, no, 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 you can't change anything, they're the ones who weren't even keeping it in the first place. They're the reason they had to come. But it's a warning to us that we don't end up being hypocrites like they were. And the whole of this chapter then ends with one last little story that links all of these, these threads together. The scribe has said, hey, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus gives the Shema, he says, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and with your mind and your strength. But then he adds the second, you've got to love your neighbour as yourself. You've got to, particularly in the context of Leviticus 19, you've got to love the widow, you've got to love the orphan, you've got to love the poor, the disadvantaged. They're the people that have to be loved and lifted up. And now, with all of this teaching going on in the temple, all of this judgment being issued to the hypocrites who have disregarded this teaching, there then comes into their midst a widow. The very example, a, a very example of the person who has really been part of this entire context. We've seen the scribes, there's been a scribe, he's talking about scribes, but the underlying issue has been their rejection of the poor, their rejection of their neighbour, their rejection of the disadvantaged, and one of those poor disadvantaged widows now walks in. This is what happens. 
He sat down opposite the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, and has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. So many threads and themes in Mark come together here. So he's in the treasury, and the treasury area had these Corban chests. Corban, we mentioned, I think, that word before, means dedicated unto God. And there were 13 chests. And don't think of treasure chests. They were shaped like horns, almost like trumpets, where you put, like, a, in, in the entrance hole, you put a, something in that would kind of go down into this, this horn-like shape. And there were 13 of them, and they were all for different things. There was, you know, one that was for taxes for this year, one that was for taxes for the previous year. There were voluntary offerings for poor people, and um, people would put in um, money for sacrifices for different sacrifices for sin, um, leftovers after they made a sacrifice for something, they could then volunteer some more money. And, and, and you know, I could go through it all. There's 13 different ones with 13 different purposes. But basically, these are voluntary offerings that were there in the temple with, with some tax in the first few. Um, when you wanted to make a contribution to them, um, there were a few rules. So let's have a look at the two groups of people coming and making offerings. The scribes have already been condemned. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, there's far more detail on this point. The condemnation of the religious leaders goes on for a very, very long time and includes an entire chapter set aside to it. And one of the things that Matthew talks about is how they loved to make announcements. Look! Here comes the Pharisee. He's about to put some money in the offering. Everybody pay attention. And that's what they would do. They would draw attention to themselves. And so there are people who are rich coming in and putting large sums in. They're watching and they're seeing. You know, we have a little system here where you can have an envelope and you can put money in an envelope before you put it in the offering. No one gets to see how much you put in. You, you put in a dollar bill, and a few coins, it's going to be as bulky as someone who puts in $1,000 bills. You know, you, you can't see the difference. It's private. And yet Jesus sees these guys come and make donations, and he says, look, they're large sums. You can see that they're large sums. They're drawing attention to look at me, putting this in. Long robes, look at me, look at me, privileged position, and what have you. Look how generous I am. And then... The widow comes in, and she's poor. And she comes in and she puts in two copper coins, which make a penny, traditionally referred to as the mite, the widow's mite. It's a tiny amount of money, and it's of significance for this reason. You couldn't just put anything in the offering. There was a minimum amount you could put in. The minimum amount was her two coins making a penny. She put in the lowest amount you could put in. It's not possible to make a legal contribution that's any smaller than what she put in. She put in the minimum. And Jesus, now not preaching, notice, just aside to his disciples, so he can now teach again, very openly and be very specific. 
because he's not having to speak in a parabolic form. He's not having to hide it anymore. He's now able to teach them clearly. And he says, truly, I'm telling you the truth here. Pay attention. This widow has put in more than all of those contributing to the offering box. So people are coming in, large amounts of money. The widow puts in the legal minimum. Jesus says she's given more. On the face of it, that's clearly wrong. She's put in the minimum, and they've put in large sums. But yet Jesus says, in a sense, she's given more. And he explains why. For, here's your explanation, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Giving is a controversial subject in the church. Very controversial. Those of you who know me know that uh, I've, I occasionally will ruffle feathers because I don't teach tithing. I teach against tithing. Most churches have traditionally taught tithing. Tithing was a system where you would take 10% of your income and you give 10% of your income to the church. Right? And what would happen is, is you earn X amount of money per year, okay? So you take 10% of that X and you give it to the church. But that's, it's, more, it's more complicated than that. Do you give 10% of the amount that you earn before tax? Or do you wait until the taxes are paid and this is how much you've got left over and you give 10% of that? Do you give 10% of, um, of what you earn in a year? what about giving 10% of all you have? Well, that's ridiculous, you say. But the concept of the tithe came from the Old Testament. The tithe was found in, Levit in, in, in Mosaic and Levitical law. And in fact, there wasn't a tithe, there were three tithes. There was a tithe that you gave that went to um, the Levitical priesthood, there's a, another tithe that you gave, and I can't recall the exact purpose right for now. There's a third tithe that was only given every uh, third year, I believe it was, that was basically blown on a party for the poor people. It's that loving your neighbour again, isn't it? The disadvantage. Hey, you poor people, come and have a big feast. We're gonna, we're gonna, people have given. And the 10% wasn't what you earned in a year. If you were a shepherd, and you had 100 sheep, and... Those hundred sheep, 20 of them are new lambs that year. You didn't give two lambs because you've gotten two, 20 new lambs that year, so you give 10% of the, of the 20, which is two. You gave 10 sheep because you have 100. You gave 10% of what you had. So you weren't giving 10% a year. You were giving 10% for one tithe, 10% for another tithe, not of what you weren't, but what you had. And every third year, you're giving another 10%. And the problem is, is that under Mosaic law, the entire system was a theocratic government, meaning God ruled. It was, everything was being run under God. So some of uh, the tithing was what you would consider giving, but mostly it was partly what you consider taxation. What's interesting is under Mosaic law, there was a system of tithing, and then there was grace giving, which was given on top of the tithe. So what's happening, and here's my big bugbear, is that churches have taken an Old Testament system, they've 
copied it and changed it, ignored the three tithes, ignored the purposes of a tithe, and just kept the concept of tithing, and they've given it to the New Testament church as a command. How many times is the church commanded to tithe? Go on, have a wild guess. Zero. There's no such thing as tithing in the New Testament. The only reference to tithing in the New Testament is a reference in the Gospels to what was being done under the Old Covenant. So, does that mean that in the New Testament we don't give? Why is it that churches have tithing still? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. Why do churches teach tithing? Firstly, because they're ignorant. It's tradition. We like to think of ourselves as being Bible-based churches, but the number of Bible-based churches who teach tithing is ridiculous when there's no, biblical there's no biblical reason for the New Testament church to tithe. There's no command to do it, no nothing. It's not even Old Testament tithing because we've changed the whole system. There's no basis for its scripture at all. It's a tradition that we do. So why do we do it? It's convenient for both parties. It's convenient for the person who gives because the person who gives can say well how much do I give? I don't know how much to give, what should I do? Oh I know, I'll tithe because that's what I'm supposed to do. So you take 10% of your income, you give 10% of your income and now you can tick your box and say I've done the giving that God has required me to do. It's a simple system that is convenient and easy to memorize and to do for the majority of people. For the pastor and for church leadership it's really convenient too. You've got a whole bunch of people coming to your church. The church has to be kept up. I've got to eat. My family's got to eat. And if everybody who comes is giving 10% of their income, then in a certain community, a certain number of people, you can basically guarantee that the church's needs are met. And then when idiots like me come along and start preaching tithing's not biblical, there's a danger, of course, of the, t of the money going down dramatically. So no one's going to do that because pastors want to eat. And when pastors in bigger churches have enough to eat and there's no fear, they can add another pastor and they can grow their church, they can do more ministry. Then why would they ever say, you haven't got to do your tithe? It's convenient to them, it's convenient to the people. But it's not biblical. What does the New Testament teach regarding giving? It says that each week you give as the Holy Spirit leads you. It talks about giving being something that's done cheerfully, not under compulsion. <laughs> What's tithing in the modern church? It's compulsion. You've got to give your 10%. It's the opposite of what's commanded. And it's not spirit-led. It's tradition-led, pastor-led, manipulation-led. But the other thing that's taught in the New Testament about giving is it needs to be sacrificial. Here's my biggest problem with tithing. If you are a poor person on a low income and you give 10% of your income to the church, you might not have enough to eat, to feed your kids, to give them clothes. If somebody came here and they were giving 10% of their income to this church and as a result of that they went without meals, the first thing I would do is say, for crying out loud, keep your money. And the second side of it is this. 
If you're someone who's earning a million dollars a year and you give 10% of your income, you still get to go on your five holidays, you still got your three houses, and you still got your seven cars. It makes almost no difference to your life at all. But it's a huge chunk of money for the church. And you've got to be so careful you don't end up like those Pharisees and those scribes who would say, look at me giving lots of money. The point that Jesus is making here is really clear. The widow gave money that she could not afford. She gave out of her poverty everything that she had and all that she had to live on. This woman had a penny left. A penny left. She had nothing. She's not going to be able to eat with a penny. She's not going to be able to feed herself with a penny. The penny is pretty much pointless. It's not like she's giving away five days of living or seven days of food. She can't live off it. It's not enough. So like a gambler in a casino with nothing left to lose, it all goes on red or it all goes on black. Except in her case, it's not a gamble because it all goes on God. I haven't got enough to live, she says. I'm going to trust in God and give it to him. And Jesus said that everything that she had went in an offering to God. Everything. And because of that, she gave more than the wealthy people who put in tons of money because they made no sacrifice. They still got to live in their big homes. They still got to have their long robes. They still got their seats at the feast. They still got the prime position in the synagogue. They still got the honor of society. And the very fact that everyone says, look at them being so generous, meant that they got the positions of honor. The woman gave everything she had. The point that Jesus is making is this, and can we see how this is part of a, a self-contained section that goes back to chapter 10 and the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was a rich man who wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, you're almost there, you've got to do one more thing. You've got to give your money to the poor, and then you've got to come and follow me. And the guy said, I can't do it. And he went away sad. This woman gave away everything she had and followed Jesus. Why was she able to do it and he wasn't? She had nothing to lose. He had everything to lose. That's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, which it clearly can't. Needles are very small, camels are very big, and there's a hump in the way just to make the whole thing humorous. It's easier for a rich man, uh, camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because if you have much in this life, you have much to lose. You have much to distract you. You have much, much to pursue, much to sort, seek after, much to gather, much to do, much power, much influence. But if you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. So I, in a sense, it's easier for the widow than it was for the rich young man. But what Jesus is doing is he's showing a sense of priority here. He's saying the sacrifice was greater for her because it was a greater percentage of what she had. And guys, I'll be frank with you. This is why I hate the whole teaching on tithing. 
because it introduces to the church an unbiblical system based on percentages. The concept of percentages is not just unbiblical, it's the opposite of what Jesus teaches. Giving is to do with sacrifice. And percentages make everybody give the same, in a sense, percentage-wise, but the sacrifice of that percentage is totally different for different people. You, you got a, you're earning a million, you're giving away 100,000. It's a huge sum of money, but you still got 900,000. Your sacrifice is nothing compared to someone who has 1,000 and gives away 100. Nothing. And all of this is to say that what Jesus is doing is he's saying there are people here, the scribes, who have power and they have money and they have authority and they have influence and they are the people who are running the show. They've corrupted the system. They've made the temple become something that brings them profit. And the whole point of a sacrificial system is forgiveness for your sin. And what is your sin? It's the rejection of the lordship of God and it's the rejection of, the, of your neighbor in need. And they're using the system to do the exact opposite of what it's about. And then here's a person who's supposed to benefit from the system, to be loved, to be looked after, because she's poor and impoverished, and she's at the bottom of society, and she's the one who's putting in. It's just a mess. And that's why Jesus was done with it. That's why it was coming to an end. Man, there's so many lessons here. There's just so many threads and themes coming together. There's the issue of money. There's the issue of sacrifice. There's the rich young ruler that I've referenced. There's the reason for the, the uh, contamination of the sacrificial system in the temple that Jesus has condemned and is going to be gotten away with completely and replaced by him. The priestly system is going to go. He is going to be the priest in the order of Melchizedek and will replace that entire system. And right at the heart of it all is this rejection of God and the rejection of the, the loving of one's neighbor. And you know what? It's a reminder to us. I look out in America and I see a Christian, I see a Christian approach that has got more to do with I'm going to look after myself and my own and not be forced to help anybody else than it is to do with true Christian living. There's a, there's a mixture in this country that is unique to this country, I think, where Christianity and politics intertwine. And there's no easy answers. And there's no political party that's going to save this country. None at all. There's no politician that's going to save this country. The, the only person that's going to save us is Christ. And Christ is saying to us, are you prepared to let go of your life and to follow me? Are you prepared to love me with everything? Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all that you have, all that you are, are you prepared to give it to me? And in, I will know if you are, because I'm going to see how you treat other people. I'm going to see how you treat the widow and how you treat the orphan. And by seeing that, I'll know whether you love me or not. And all of this is to sum up that the scribes 
were supposed to be the religious people, the holy people, the people defending the law. The scribes were the people who had forgotten what was really at the heart of the law. Were doing the absolute opposite of what the system taught and were worthy of the condemnation that Jesus was bringing on them. You know what I find hard about this story? The widow left with nothing. There's no Oprah Winfrey, Ellen DeGeneres. There's no, hey, hey widow, I saw what you did. Here, come and have a car. Here's a check for $10,000 from one of our sponsors. She gave everything she had and she walked out. She had nothing to eat. Jesus doesn't run up and give her money. He says to his disciples, that's faith. That's giving. That's sacrifice. That's how it's supposed to be. She stands as an example. But I wonder what happened to her. Did she eat again that day? The corrupted system wasn't going to support her. And it acts as the basis for the beginning of chapter 13. And we'll read ahead just briefly to show the linking from 12 to 13. And then after Christmas, we'll come back and we'll look at chapter 13 in detail. But look how it starts. As he came out of the temple. They've just been in the temple. They've seen the woman. She's given her two, mite, her, her two copper coins, her penny. She's put the minimum in. She's lost everything she has. And they come out and they say, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful building. Jesus said, look, truly, this woman gets it. This woman has given more. Do you know that box number five of the 13 offering boxes was contributions that went to wood for the altar? Box number seven was gold to house the Holy of Holies. Contributions to pay for the gold in the Holy of Holies. That system, that building, was all done by these offerings. The system was a corrupt system with big buildings, big robes, big people, and those who needed it, those who were supposed to be supported, didn't get anything. And that's why Jesus said, you see these buildings? There's not going to be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. I'll remind you again after Christmas when we come back to teach that passage, but you know, all that gold and the Holy of Holies, maybe the widow put her money in the fifth box. Maybe her money went towards gold for the Holy of Holies. And when the temple got destroyed and burnt down, that gold melted. It melted in the heat. And the gold seeped in between the stones. So when the Romans came to the ruins, they took apart the stones to get the gold that had gone in between. And so it was that there was literally no stone left upon another. Those who trusted in riches lost it all. The widow's left with nothing. She's left with nothing at all but her faith in God means she's going to be rich.
Let me end on this point. Someone came to me today at church after church and she cried because her sister has terminal cancer and will be dead very soon. Her sister's a believer. And it's sad when someone goes because we love them, we don't want them to go. But we talked and I talked about life being a breath. We made reference in this morning's sermon, we made a reference to the, the, the departing of the, the presence of God from Israel and the return of the presence of God or Israel. And I said to you, it's 600 years. Think about how long 600 years is. Your life and my life is a breath. We've got little pockets of time. We're here and we're gone and we're forgotten. Our life is nothing. And if we invest in long robes, in elevating ourselves, in making big buildings, everything is wasted. But that widow is going to be rich in heaven. Because God was everything to her and she didn't get distracted. It's so easy in this world to love money more than we love God, whether we're rich or poor. So easy in this world to be distracted by all the entertainment and all the things going on in our world. Do you know how easily God can raise people up to do different things? He, he doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your gifts or your time. He wants your heart. That widow had nothing to offer God. But she gave all she had, and he had her heart. The Pharisees and the scribes had so much, but they never gave their hearts. The implication of that whole section of Scripture, they didn't love him with all their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength. They didn't. So the question for us is this, not are you rich or you're poor, not are you going to be rich or poor, not how much do you give to the church or to elsewhere. The question is this, are you going to love God with all that you have? Your heart, with your mind, with your soul, your life, your strength, your might? Are you going to love your neighbour as yourself? Are you going to humble yourself? We've seen it throughout our studies in Philippians. Thinking of other people as being more important than yourself. Or are you going to be like everybody else on this planet and look after number one? Because if we do that, we, like the scribes, show that our heart never belonged to God to begin with. You know, I'm glad when we come to judgment passages in Scripture, that my life is under the blood of Christ. <laughs> I'm glad that my life and my sin is forgiven. I'm glad that the blood of Christ covers me. I'm glad that when I stand before God, I'm clothed with Christ's, Christ's righteousness and that my sins are forgiven, and that every selfish deed I've ever done is gone and forgotten about, and I know that I can come before him without any fear at all. But those judgment passages, they still have something to teach us. And I hope and I pray 
that we can learn from them and learn to give our lives to God wholeheartedly. You know, it's weird. Death has been on my mind. My father's just had a birthday, turned 75. He said to me, he was visiting a few months ago, and he said to me, you know what, he says, I'm now older than my father was when he died. Someone comes with a sibling who's about to die. I look at my life, and I've, if I'm really, really healthy, and I'm really, really lucky, I'm probably halfway. What have I got to show for it? What am I going to do with the next half? What happens if I die tomorrow? The whole of the collecting of things and looking after ourselves and making sure we've got everything that we want, it's utterly, utterly futile. Because none of it comes with us. And this isn't even about giving. This is just about this. What are we doing now in this life that we will take with us in the next life? That's all. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he stays and he serves using the gifts, the opportunities that God has given him. I want my life to count for something. I want to serve God, but I know I'm just so easily distracted. May God protect us, and may God direct us. Let's pray. Father, may we not be distracted. You saved us, you chose us, because you had a purpose. You gifted us, you gave us gifts that we might serve your church, your body. And yet our tendency is always to serve ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me where I've sought to look after myself and not to serve your body. May we love you by loving your church. May we love you by loving our neighbour. May we love you by loving you with all that we have. Trusting like the widow that when we give you everything, you will not let us down. May we entrust ourselves to you in every sense. And may you be glorified through our lives. Amen.